the St. Barnabas Pocket Sermon Podcast. The sermon you're about to listen to is by the Reverend Karen Haig from the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus and his disciples went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Holy and Undivided Trinity, amen. Amen. The Bible is like a dinner party. You get all these different personalities around a table and get surprised by the conversation that ensues. At our table for today's dinner, we have three special guests. First, there's the rather intense and insistent Deuteronomy. Now, I know it's a book, but... Let's just treat him like an old desert hermit. We'll call him Old Doot. Now, living out in the barren desert, it's made Old Doot so focused on day-to-day survival that he sees pretty much everything as a life or death issue. In such a hostile environment, there's always a very small margin of error. So your choices really matter, as Old Doot is always quick to point out. Now, next we have St. Paul who's a pretty intense guy himself, but he's more genteel than the sunburned, wild-eyed old dude. And in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul is much less cranky as well. He wants to make everyone feel comfortable in a brand new church where cultural diversity is creating a lot of tension and anxiety. And then there's St. Mark. He's the best storyteller of the bunch, and he holds everyone spellbound with his tale about the demon who comes to church. But you gotta watch yourself with Mark. His stories really draw you in, but then you discover they're not really about someone else or about you, and you're never the same after that. And all of you are at this dinner party too, with your own stories and perspectives to add to the conversation. So what did you hear as you listened to old dude? and Paul, and Mark. Let me tell you what I heard. My own response is shaped by a book by Jillian Rose. 
She was a British Jew and a brilliant philosopher. She died of cancer in 1995 at the age of 48. And on her deathbed, she was baptized by the Bishop of Coventry. Rose's book is called Against Innocence because her central argument is that innocence is a costly delusion. None of us gets to be innocent, she says. And what she means by that is that we are not allowed as the people of God to withdraw from the messiness of history and community into a place of purity and truth where we get to be right and innocent while those who differ from us get to be guilty and wrong. We don't get to divide everyone up into the innocent and the guilty, the sheep and the goats, because there's no one who is without sin. There's no one who gets it right all the time. So no single one of us gets to stand apart from the rest and pronounce judgment. We have to dwell together in what Rose calls the broken middle, where conversation among people holding contradictory ideas and values must be carried on even when a final reconciliation seems unimaginable. She calls this middle space broken because it's a condition of tension and incompleteness and ambiguity and even confusion, where illusions of innocence and purity and certainty and correctness are shattered, and those who dwell there sometimes feel torn apart by the riptides of disagreement and complexity and contradiction. But if we want to be a church that is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, we don't get to have an exclusive association of correct and like-minded people, nor do we get to silence those who differ from us. For Rose, honesty is more important than correctness. Peace is more important than being right. But when she says peace, she doesn't mean the kind of quiet when discordant voices are repressed and silenced, but the kind of peace built upon justice where every voice gets heard and our own internal conflicts are also acknowledged in a conversation that is open to whatever it is that the Spirit wants to say next, not just what everybody's said so far. Our own Anglican tradition was formed by the painful process of working its way out of the ideological warfare between Catholics and Protestants in the 16th and 17th centuries. And in that process, it had to learn how to live in the broken middle, where some very different ways of doing church and being church could coexist under the same roof. It had to maintain a continuing conversation, which is not always easy, but is, in fact, what families do. Staying together is more important than being right all the time. As you are well aware, this principle of living in the broken middle is being sorely tested in America today. The very concept of respectful conversation between differing perspectives has been poisoned by an epidemic of mass delusion and dishonesty on a scale not seen since 1930s Germany. Honest differences of opinion do not include, however, crazy talk or hate speech, which are the death of conversation. So, what does Old Dude and Paul and Mark, what do they have to say about all this? As I listen to them, I keep hearing the question of authority. How do we know what to do when choices are not self-evident? 
or when viewpoints clash? What wisdom shall guide our decisions? How do we respond to difference and disagreement? Let's listen in to what the three are saying. Old Dude is talking about Moses' farewell address to his people at a critical moment in their history. They've just finished 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and they're about to cross the river into the promised land. But until they do, they're still desert folk. And what 40 years of wilderness survival teaches you is that everything is a gift. Manna from heaven, water from the rock, a precious bit of shade in the heat. You don't get to own these things. They come as a gift. Without water or manna, without the God who provides these things, God's people would all be dry bones bleaching in the sun. So now, on the verge of entering a land of milk and honey, where an easier life might make them forget their dependence on God, Moses reminds them to keep in God's way and never forget what the desert has taught them. As old Dute tells it, God's chosen people are having a crisis of authority because Moses is retiring as their leader and prophet, the one whose voice could always be counted on to speak in God's name. Now Moses tells his people not to worry, the next prophet will be just as reliable. I will put my words in the mouth of the new prophet, God tells Moses, who in turn tells this to the people. But their anxiety about authority remains, and God has to remind them to show the new prophet the same respect that they showed to Moses. But God also knows enough about human nature to speak a warning to Moses' successors. If any, if any future prophet starts to mislead the people, God says, that prophet shall die. This sounds a little harsh to our ears, but the strong language here indicates how much is at stake. In the desert, there's no margin for error. If you forget divine wisdom, all is lost. Our collective survival depends upon keeping in God's word and in God's way. A leader who misleads brings only death. The way old Dute sees it, we're always needing a prophetic voice, some kind of inspired authority by which to discern what God wants us to do. We were lucky to have Moses while we did, but whether future prophets will actually speak for God, well, that's not exactly a sure thing. From now on, we must live with a degree of uncertainty about the truth. We must live in the broken middle, the place of conversation where we work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. And the voice of the prophet will not be a single voice anymore, but a collective wisdom. Now, St. Paul is coming from a very different place and time, and he's got his own thoughts about authority. And since this is a dinner party, he decides to talk about it in terms of food. He's been advising the church in Corinth concerning the matter of eating meat prepared by pagan butchers. By religious custom, butchers would ritually offer their meat to the gods before selling it to their customers. And if any Christians should eat this meat, would that implicate them in pagan practice and pagan idolatry? This was an issue as long as pagan gods were granted some form of existence by Christians, many of whom were former pagans. And they might now call these gods by other names, like demons, 
while still taking them seriously enough to stay clear of anything connected with them. Those Christians were like the modern fundamentalists who avoid Harry Potter books for fear of the occult. But there were in Corinth a number of more sophisticated Christians who dismissed pagan mythology as total fiction. There were no gods, they argued, and therefore meat could not really be sacrificed to them. Voila, since there was no such thing as idolatrous meat, a Christian could enjoy a good barbecue with impunity. Fine, said Paul, except for one thing. If some Christians are seen at the local rib joint by other Christians who think that's a sin, might that cause the latter to fall off the Christian wagon, so to speak? Don't wound a weak conscience, Paul warns the smart people who smirk at the unsophisticated Christians because they get squeamish about pagan meat. If you act, says Paul, if you act through their religious, if you act as though their religious convictions are stupid, they may lose any conviction whatsoever. They may come to think Christianity is not a serious alternative practice. Or they may just slip back into their old familiar pagan ways and choose meat over church. All this may seem a little arcane, but wouldn't any of us think twice about having a drink when we're with a recovering alcoholic? Corinth is a church with a culture clash. There are those for whom idols are still an issue and those for whom they are not. Should they just break up into separate congregations like St. Carnivore and St. Abstania, where they could each be with just like-minded believers? Or do they try to stay together in the broken middle, where being together is more important than being smart or correct? Paul is the voice of authority here, and what he tells them is this. It's not what you know, it's how you love. When you dwell in the broken middle where voices and values clash, let love be your guide. Pagan meat may not bother you, but it bothers some of your brothers and sisters. So be kind, be generous, pass the broccoli. Now Mark has grown a little bored with all this talk about food. So he decides to liven up the party with a story about the demon. It starts out with this young preacher named Jesus wowing the congregation in Capernaum with his sermon. They were all astounded at his teaching, says Mark. For he taught them as one having authority, not like the local clergy. They just quote the holy books. But this man has got authority. And not just his words, Jesus changes things. He can work miracles. And suddenly, a wild man bursts into the synagogue. Possessed by a demon, he starts screaming and shouting and knocking things around. And then the demon inside him starts to yell at Jesus. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Did you come here to destroy us? And Jesus says, silence. Come out of him. And just like that, the demon comes out of him. That's pretty exciting stuff for a church service. The congregation was absolutely amazed. Now that's authority, they said. Even the demons obey him. So what is Mark's story telling us about authority? 
the authority of Jesus, which is so evident to the congregation, was not embraced by the local clergy. Their own authority was based on separating the clean and the unclean, the holy and the unholy. They needed the scapegoat, the victim, the outsider, the disreputable, the guilty, in order to define themselves as pure and holy, innocent and good. Then along comes Jesus, erasing their boundaries, messing up their game, creating a broken middle where no one is perfect, but everyone is welcome. He doesn't just cure the mad. He eats with sinners and treats women like friends and equals. It's an infuriating disruption of the social and religious order. Biblical scholars point out that for Jesus to cast out a demon or cure a leper, whatever the medical facts involved, it was to treat them as whole persons, no longer excluded from human dignity and fully included in the life of the community. And this gift of inclusive wholeness, which Jesus offers, doesn't look anything like the scribe's version of salvation. As far as they're concerned, you're either in or out, innocent or guilty, acceptable or unacceptable. But Jesus says, and he speaks with authority, Everyone in the room can feel it. Jesus says, we are all included in the broken middle, that holy mess where the incarnate God has chosen to meet us, where we, however broken and possessed by our own demons, enter honestly and earnestly into an ongoing conversation of diverse and often contrary voices, a conversation in which God's word will be spoken and God's will shall be accomplished all in due time. Meanwhile, we don't have to be innocent. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be right always, all the time. We just have to love and keep talking and keep listening. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our dinner conversation. And now let's get ready for the main course. <laughs>